You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Earth Day to you. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. And we are, as is typically the case, and surprisingly so today, we've got us a Benny sighting. Why would that be such a surprise? Bad boy Benny Mathers is with us when we thought you wouldn't be, Benny. I was just trying to keep you on your toes. And you succeeded. <laughs> so I was expected to... Uh, you know, have some civic duties involved with some jury duty, and I was able to uh, get some excuses on that. And uh, I'm here back in the saddle with y'all. Well, we appreciate it. We yeah. are very comfortable having you here on a Friday with <laughs> yeah, us. It's been a while. I, um, I managed uh, the first time I was selected for jury duty. It was in, I was in Chicago and it was in an extremely bad neighborhood oh. of Chicago mm -hmm. where I was supposed to go down to juvenile court. And I, um, I, my boss's 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 boss managed to get me out of it. <laughs> hey. So I didn't have to make that drive down to a, a bad neighborhood. And then it was a long time again before I was selected. And I was selected again here in, in Sarasota, Florida where I took a bag full of crossword puzzles, books, magazines, and I sat from eight in the morning till four or five in the afternoon. And then they said, uh, we've negotiated a settlement and you will not be called for jury duty. Ah. So I just spent a whole day, you yeah. know, sitting in a chair. Yeah. You know. Things are a little, I think, easier nowadays, though. You can log in via Zoom or they give you a link. That's what I've been told as well. So even though ah. I was anticipating that on Tuesday, I followed up and they said I didn't have to attend. So they had enough jurors already selected or. OK, that's what I was. Okay. That was what I was told. So thankfully, it all worked out. And uh, my other plans are uh, back here in the saddle with uh, y'all. Civic duty. Yep. Civic duty. Uh avoided I, i'm probably <laughs> paraphrasing here but i remember a great line from seinfeld in which jerry seinfeld said when you go on trial you are putting your fate in the hands of 12 people who weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty <laughs> <laughs> and but benny go. handled it the right way the legal way and the rational way certainly from his perspective. And so we have the benefit of your presence here, Benny, as always, we're glad to see you. It's good to be here. Thanks. I appreciate it. And um, just to head you, uh, give you a heads up to our guest is no longer on the phone. We're bringing him on the zoom. So it'll be just a second. Oh, very good. Logs oh, in there too, nice. just so we're aware of the situation. And let's, let's talk about our guest. Gary. We yes. We, we specifically chose him for earth day. Why don't you give him his mad props and Thanks. we have things to talk about with him. Lots of things and great stories of real adventure stories. Oh yeah. And the gentleman's name is Stephen Ladd there. And he's one of us Seattle Puget sound related folks. He takes the ferry over to Bremerton. 
Ah. from Seattle because that is where he lives. It's where he was born. born Stephen Ladd. Mm -hmm. He was born in Bremerton, Washington in 1953. That makes him one of us too, a fellow boomer. Boomer. Mm -hmm. As a child, he was happy to sit in a corner reading history and geography books. After high school, he traveled through Europe, Asia, Africa, inadvertently witnessing the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971 and passing a traumatic month in a Moroccan prison. Oi, I'm reminded, see, you know, I would have suggested a, a drop at the bottom of the hour coming back from the break of Marrakesh Express, but that might be a little too on the nose. So we're not going to do that today. My goodness, what an experience. He navigated the emotional crisis of his youth alone in foreign cultures. And this is why I could go on and on. The man has a tremendous curriculum vitae. But here's what I say about all of that. We're so glad to have him with us on this day of days because it is the 52nd Earth Day. How's the planet doing? Well, we'll find out what it's like through the eyes of somebody who has been to places that I quite likely will never see. And he was immersed in other cultures. He interacted with them. And that kind of experience is invaluable. So for the first time, we're delighted to welcome Stephen Ladd to Manson Mitchell. Stephen, sir, welcome. Thank you. Happy to have you here. I noticed today on Earth Day, it's called the theme for 2022 is invest in our planet. Earth Day being a partnership of business, government, and people to protect our health, our families, and our livelihoods. How fascinating that in the portal of life, you were born and raised in Bremerton, and how what role that played in your personal connection to the Earth and your very first voyage, which you took around the San Juans. I wanted you to say a little bit about the very first trip you ever took in a boat. Okay. Well, I vaguely remember the first Earth Day, and within a couple of years, I was going to Huxley Environmental College, so I was definitely an environmentalist then. Um, so, yeah, right at about that same time, I got my first boat, and I went up into the San Juans and it had its challenges. I was not very good at boats yet. And I kind of muffed some things and <clears throat> had to kind of draw on inner resources being by myself. But of course it was formative experience and I went on to other voyages. You know, Stephen, one time I was inviting somebody to um, come and join me at a Toastmasters meeting because this man did a fair amount of public speaking and was never comfortable with it. And he said, oh, no, no, I wouldn't join anything like that unless I was already good at it. And it, it reminds me of your saying you weren't all that good the first time you went out in a boat. Well, it would kind of be ridiculous if you were. There is that learning curve that is your experience, but the story goes on and gets quite a bit more fascinating in what happened 18 years later. So here you're talking about, you know, a little trip through the San Juan Islands, close to where you live in Washington State, and then something happened to you where you made a, a choice, you made a decision to take a much bigger trip and tell our listeners about that. 
Okay. Well, it has something to do with a sort of a inner clock or alarm clock that I seem to have inside me that, in a way, it ties into Earth Day in the sense that usually the alarm clock tells me it's time to go on not just any adventure, but an adventure that involves a lot of nature, wilderness, or foreign travel, places that are outside my comfort zone, places that are foreign to me. And so you're referring now to when I took off in the year 1990 on a on a voyage that ended up in my book three years in a 12-foot boat because I did spend three years in a, in a boat of my own design and construction and that's just that there's a inner clock inside me that says I, I have a lot of want, wanderlust that builds up and, and has to be expelled you know it, it's like a dam bursting and so it did burst in 1990 and I and I just spent the next three years and I, but I built the boat ready for that ahead of time. And um, so I spent the next three years in that, in that 12 foot boat and, and I got the wanderlust out of my system, but then it came back again, 18 years later. And that's my, my newest book. <laughs> How long did it take you to build your 12 foot boat? Well, it was a year and a half of design work in a year and a half of construction. So three years to put it all together. That's right. And, um, and obviously, during that three-year period, you were anticipating leaving. Did, when you anticipated taking your trip, did you know at that point you were going to be gone for three years, or were you adjusting the time away during the, your trip? It ended up being about twice as long as I thought it would be. I thought maybe oh. a year and a half, but it was three years. Three years. And during that time, Stephen, as I first got thinking about our interview today, I was so glad that you were available on Earth Day. When you're interacting with people from these other cultures, you get to be a world citizen, it seems to me, in a way that I have not experienced. I've barely, I made it to Mexico and I've been to Canada, but I've been in North America. I didn't get to these other parts of the world. What was the experience like internally for you when you're engaging with people who may not understand what it means to be an American, even as you're trying to understand what it means to be a citizen of their country? Well, certainly that's part of it, a big part of it. And the, the foreignness that you experience in such trips involves the foreign people, the, the different cultures. Um, for, for that 1990 to 1993 trip I learned Spanish if you're going to spend three years traveling <laughs> in these countries you might as well learn the language and how much better it is to do that let me tell you it's definitely worth it I I like to I don't travel very often but I travel for a long time when I do and it's worth learning the language but oh the the people are often poor that you're with not always they can be the the world is a big place with a lot of different things in it. It's, it, it shouldn't be overgeneralized or categorized too much. You'll meet not just poor people, or you'll also meet rich people, and you'll meet all different kinds of people. And um, it, it helps to know how to interact with all these different kinds of people. The experience teaches you a lot about how to do that. When you were going through 19 different countries in those three years, did most of them speak Spanish? Yeah, they were mostly Spanish speaking that, that I was in, except, well, about numerically, I suppose only about half of them were because I spent 
uh, a lot of time on my way back coming through the Caribbean islands. And each island tends to be a different country, and they they generally speak English. But I didn't. But they're small pinpricks of countries, and I, I didn't spend all that long a time in them. So the bulk of the time was in Panama, Colombia, and Venezuela. And during that time, was there was there one um, country, region, area that you felt very strongly connected with? You know, emotionally. I, I had a real good connection with Colombia. Colombia for Americans has a bit of a negative connotation with drug cartels, but it's uh, a very honest, forthright country. The people are friendly and the, for example, the shops all want to give good service to you, which is in some contradistinction to say Venezuela, a little bit different culture. So I'd have to say that I put my vote on Colombia. I, I like Cuba, which I was in uh, later on as well. Uh, quite different, but I liked it in a different way. The um, the people, you're talking about the cultures and the people, that would have to be, I, I, would, I would say, the most interesting part of any trip. And I've done a little bit of traveling, but you do get different cultures. Interesting that you said that in one place, the, they were trying to give you good service. It's funny how we have these generalizations about various cultures. And then when you go to actually be among those people, you find out if that, if that mythology actually is true. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and in, in some cases it isn't that people are, you know, maybe more polite, let's say in Canada than they are in the United States or that, you know, they give greater service in, in Colombia than in another area. And, and so were there other kinds of, of things about these cultures where if you, if you looked at them, if you surveyed them in your mind, could you, could you kind of use just a few words to describe some of them that really stood out for you? Yeah, well, in some cases, the distinctions are kind of subtle. The, the distinction between Colombia and Venezuela is a little bit subtle, but it's, but it's an interesting case study because Colombia and Venezuela are kind of like East Germany and West Germany or North Korea and South Korea because they used to be one big country and then they split apart. And so they sort of by their origins should be quite similar, but they're fairly different. And, and you can, um, you know, make, you know, imagine reasons why that might be the case. But um, I, I generally prefer for Colombia, the, the, the people there. Um, but that's, that's, you know, naming a country doesn't name all the people in that country. That right. There's all different kinds of people in Colombia. Like coming into Colombia, I, I came there by way of Panama and coming along the Panama, Panamanian coast. Um, I was among the Choco Indians. Now, this is just a one among many different kinds of Indian tribes, and they often still don't wear much by way of clothes and they blacken their bodies with a kind of a soot or something black. And uh, so you'll just see them when you're in town. The, those Native Americans may not even speak Spanish. So um, you have a different experience with them, of course. They, I, they, in some cases, I couldn't even talk to. But <clears throat> then later on, you're in a different part of that 
region and it's that there's a lot of along the pacific coast of Colombia, the population was generally black which is a black native american colombian that where they were you know if you take it back to how they ended up there they were escaped slaves during the times of slavery really a different culture then you get up to the mountainous regions which is where most of the population live as and usually when you think of a colombian person they're they're more from the highlands area and they're they're mestizo and they couldn't look quite north american as far as that concerned but they're they're different then you get to the other side you know what's called the llanos when you get to the east side of colombia and what's also parts of venezuela it's uh you might you, you one tends to have heard of the pampos region of south america the gauchos and the great big plains and there's cowboys well that thing exists too in Colombia and Venezuela, this area I'm talking about. And those people are different again. They're kind of like cowboys. They're um, polite but formal and standoffish. They are shy and they are very quick to not let you come onto their territory unless you've been invited maybe, but they can be just as friendly. Uh, so difference between people that are used to kind of huddling together in, in large population densities and other people that are more used to being scattered over a wide plain searching for their sustenance or herding their cattle way off five miles that way and 10 miles that way when you were traveling did you have a particular thing that you were interested in personally when you were going to all these places was it the geography, for example, or, or was it the cuisine? You know, we've seen a lot of um, television shows where, you know, people are going and eating strange things in all kinds of different countries, bugs and weird fish and snakes and, you know, things that aren't typical American food. And, and so when you were traveling, was there a, a, a something that you were particularly paying attention to? Could have been there you know, how they looked or their religion or, or their food or whatever? Was, was it about the actual earth itself? Or was it more having to do with how the people were living there? Not cuisine too much. I am not a, a food tourist. Or, or whatever you call those people. I, I just, um, I just eat to, to live instead of live to eat. But I guess I'd, I'd put my vote on the earth itself. I was really keen on seeing the beautiful coastlines that come following a, following the Pacific coast of Panama and Colombia. It's kind of like the, it's kind of like the Oregon coast. If you know what it looks down there with sea stacks and big cliffs and bluffs and stuff and big, big trees and heavy forest kind of the forest is so thick and dense and it rains so much that it's like the jungle at the edge of these cliffs is just kind of spilling over the edge, you know, all the trees and jungle growth are literally just kind of drooping, <laughs> you know, they, they don't want to stay on top. They're all kind of hanging over, you know, because there's so much rainfall down there. The, the rainfall in that region, I'm talking about the Pacific coast of Colombia is, and I don't remember the number in absolute terms, but I remember once I compared it to Seattle, Washington, it was 13 times the annual rainfall of Seattle, Washington. Wow. Now, that means a lot of things. That means that it rains so hard that if you're in a boat 
and you don't take care, your boat can sink just from the rain, which wow. uh, happened to <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> my boat capsized anyway, and that was the cl- that was a worst experience I had. My my boat had a capsize experience just because it rained so hard. Well, I would like to hear. We've got some time before we take our bottom of the hour break, Stephen. There and Stephen Ladd, our honored guest of the hour on Earth Day, no less, is the author of the Five Year Voyage: Exploring Latin American Coasts and Rivers. We are embracing the Earth today, and sometimes we capsize. You go out there, you're looking at that. There, you're a very seasoned voyager, Stephen. What did you do? What were you thinking? Were you able to get any local assistance? Well, in that particular case, I was still sort of new to this voyaging in a boat along distances. And there was there was just a number of challenges kind of stacked on top of each other, difficult aspects to the navigational problem that left me just drifting at night. You have to sleep at night, but in a 12-foot boat, you don't get much rest. You want to, that boat was designed to pull up on a beach, but when the shoreline here again, we're, we're in the Pacific coast of Columbia. It's like, it's like the Oregon coastline. It's crashing waves on just uh, the foot of a cliff, you know, rocks and stuff. You can't pull up there. So I would go offshore at night, like just far enough so that during the night, I wouldn't accidentally drift onto the shore. And then I just take down the sails and I get inside the cabin, had a very, very small cabin, just big enough to kind of hunch down into. And what I hadn't taken into account that night was that I have a cockpit and that cockpit was not self-draining. You have to, you have to bail whatever splash or rainwater comes in, you know, with a bucket. And so I went inside and it rained so hard that the cockpit filled up with water and that, that water was kind of perched above a center of gravity point. So when it filled up with water, the boat just turned upside down. But in terms of people helping me, (laughs) I was five miles offshore in the morning when I, well, I, I I figured out a way to refloat the boat by turning water containers into just air containers, you know, pouring out the water, sticking those things below the water level so that the boat would raise higher. And then what you have to do in that situation is you have to get your opening into your cabin above the water level, and then you can bail the water out. And when I got to shore, there were people there to help, but not until then. It reminds me, it's a different context there, but still I'm associating something here. When uh, Suzanne and I made a trip from Seattle, boy, that was, that was quite the road trip. We went from Seattle to Reno and we're sitting there at uh, our favorite hotel there enjoying breakfast. And a lady from Brazil was our server. So naturally I got curious. I wanted to know about where she'd been in life, et cetera, et cetera. We swapped a few stories. She said, and this is where life becomes regional and it becomes local and it becomes organic. And sometimes there is an emergent situation that somebody has to deal with on the spot. I guess that's why I'm thinking of it in these terms. But this Brazilian lady told us that if you wanted to get across the river in this little town there, it's not always easy to do because of piranha. And when they're around and they are feeding, look out. Not, it doesn't make for a good crosswalk, let's put it that way. And the lady told me that one of the locals, quite instinctively and with much experience, I'm sure, said, don't cross yet. 
we have somebody who found a dead dog. I'm just telling you what they said, found a dead dog. I took it as given. And they threw it at the other end of town over here. When the piranha all go to feast on this carcass, then they will be over there and you can cross the river safely. That's not something to which I've ever had to give any thought, <laughs> you know, but whether I'm looking at, at a, a passage that hopefully is piranha free, or if my boat capsized because of the rain for Pete's sake, you have to learn to listen to your instincts and be able to think on your feet and act quickly. Yeah, don't panic. Stay calm. <clears throat> and uh, the, that worked for you. It'll throw a lot of variety at you. You never, you never know for sure what's going to happen. What What was the most harrowing thing that happened in your three year experience? Hmm. The thing that that really got you very concerned. Well, there was another night on that same coastline that was pretty spooky. It was similar uh, to what I described in the in the capsized night, but instead of it being a uh, a rocky cliff kind of shoreline. It was a very, very peculiar shoreline. This shoreline was, um, it was all mangrove swamp. Like if you're, it's easier to imagine this looking down, like from an airplane, you would see that the coastal area is for 50 miles going in some, something like that. It's all just flat mangrove swamp that is an inhospitable zone. You can't go in there. You can't, the human being is not made for mangrove swamp, you know? And then the beach is, it's, everything's very flat. It, the beach is just really, well, it's really wide in a way because the, the other thing to consider is that not, it's very flat on land and then it remains very shallow way out to sea. But the thing you have to lay on top of this that makes that very difficult is that the tidal fluctuation in that area between low and high tides was 20 feet that means oh that gosh. the shoreline itself shifts yeah. as much as 10 miles imagine you're on the beach at high tide then you, you wait there at, to, to low tide the beaches the water's 10 miles away that means that you in the boat you have to be very aware of this where where it's not breaking surf at one time of the tidal stage it will be breaking surf at another time of the tidal stage. And so you have to, there being no way to go onto this shoreline because it's just, there's no harbors. It's just the beach with big way, the, the Pacific in this area always has big crushing surf. You have to anchor out there when you want to sleep and you have to anchor with regard to the tide. And then anyway, I was doing that on one night when I had this harrowing experience. I, uh, I'll continue with that if you like the particulars, but I've given you the setting of it anyway. Yeah, you know, we're going to take our break now. We'll go ahead and continue the story on the other side of the break, Stephen. We'd be delighted to hear that. And then I, I want to, in the spirit of Earth Day, I wanted to I want to discuss the implications of the kinds of experiences you have had. You've lived an extraordinary life, and there's so much to be said here. The book, this book, is The Five-Year Voyage, Exploring Latin American Coasts and Rivers. Stephen Ladd is our guest. We like to do what we call the marketing piece on the other side of our break. So you'll be hearing more about the book 
and uh, more than just how to access it, how this fits into a travel log journey, a writing career. He's not just a guy in a boat. He's a guy who goes out on a boat and then writes about it tellingly, philosophically, and with great empathy and cultural awareness. And that's why we have him on with us today. This is Manson Mitchell. Give us a couple of minutes. We will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Nansen Mitchell welcomes Steve Ladd, adventurer, memoirist, and small boat expert from Bremerton, Washington. He'll regale us with stories from his around-the-world travels. Local boy makes good. On Saturday, listener favorite psychic medium Vincent Jenner returns for metaphysical Q&A and a preview of his upcoming book, The Secret That's Holding You Back. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10, right here on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. And our guest this hour making his debut on Manson Mitchell is Stephen Ladd. And Stephen is with a PH, by the way, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-L-A-D-D. Stephen, if you have more than one book. We talked about the first book that you wrote, Three Years in a 12-Foot Boat. You also have another book that we want to talk about in the remaining part of our interview, The Five-Year Voyage. If people would like to connect with you, uh, do you have a website we can refer them to? And where can they get your books? Yeah, my website tells about these books. It's just my name, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, then a dash between it and the last name which is L-A-D-D. And so those two books will be there and some other writings like magazine articles will be there. there it's available where, wherever you want to buy books. Excellent. And some have people ever written to you to tell you about their adventures or ask you about yours? I have had uh, a lot of contact with my readers and it is really, it really 
makes your heart warm to get that fan mail. Let me tell you, um, I've had people actually go on voyages, kind of like what we're talking about, because they read my book. Ah, that really is good. Yeah, that people really, that have decided yeah. this changes my life. I'm going to get or build a boat. I'm going to live on yeah. a boat the rest of my life. And I actually have those people <laughs> that have done that. Wow, that is quite inspirational. Kudos to you, sir. <laughs> I think that's great. Now, your second book and your second trip 18 years later was not taken alone. So now I have to ask you, what happened between your 1990 voyage and your next voyage? Okay. At the conclusion of three years on a 12-foot boat, I went back into my occupation, which was city planning, city government work. And there over at a different desk, different department, but same government was a young woman who is now my wife. She impressed me. I impressed her. We went on hikes. We went on uh, mountain bike rides and canoe trips. And then, then the dam broke again. Like I told you before it, it broke and that first voyage. Now it broke and it was really as much her instigation as mine. She really wanted to get out of town and she never had any lack of gusto. She never had any trepidations or second thoughts. She was right on board with this whole thing. She was just as much wanted to keep on a going as I ever was. So that's Virginia goes by Ginny Ladd. And she helped write the book from the standpoint that we both kept journals. The, the book is a result of both of them. And she was the photographer for the five-year voyage exploring Latin American coasts and rivers. All of that experience. What did it, if anything, Stephen, and I don't, I don't ask this to put you on the spot at all. you got a million stories. Pick one. It's fine. Wherever we go, this is Earth Day, and it's all relevant. There, what did you, in general terms, what did you learn about the world, about the way the world works? Some guy sitting at a desk in Cleveland there who's tied to his job or some Wall Street broker in New York, they have their window on the world as well, and as well they should. What did you learn when you got out and interfaced with these other cultures that told you about the state of the planet on this 52nd Earth Day? Yeah, and that could be addressed through several categories, but I'll just take this one to start with, and that's that it's run by governments, and governments have these crazy rules and regulations, and you can't ignore them. The very first thing we had to do in leaving the United States was we had to go to Cuba because Cuba is just from the navigational standpoint of getting from Florida to Central America. If it's a small boat, you can't do that in one crossing. You go to Cuba, follow the coast of Cuba, then you cross over to Mexico. Well, they have this embargo against Cuba and these sales, what you can and can't do is mostly can't. And so you figure out what degree of breaking the law you want to do, which is probably not very much. We, we, we tried to follow all laws, not necessarily because we agreed them, with them because we don't want the downside potential, you know, of, of getting in big trouble. Then later on, these rules and regulations may be more of a different nature, like that the country in question does not have, say, Venezuela, also Argentina. They don't have free currencies. They have and what I mean by that is that you can't 
outside that country get that currency you have to go through a bank that's controlled by the government of that country to get that currency and they charge an artificial rate which means that it's maybe double or triple what the rest of the world thinks that currency is worth so you have to decide if you're going to operate in the black market if you operate in the black market in some of those countries you can your light your your the cost of living will go down you know that much 50% or more and it's because because of a governmental action and i we morally were were fine with that so we did we did operate in the black market but and we didn't get any trouble but there's ins and outs to that so i'll just start with that category there's there's rules for all the different countries and even for the local ports about how you're supposed to do this paperwork wise you have to fill out these papers and get these clearances check in check out and um the whole thing is one long litany of how to do this paperwork and how to make that clearance and how to and so you you put up with it because you don't want to get in trouble but eventually uh, we it gets it builds up to where you eventually you start sloughing off and uh, not taking it all quite so seriously <laughs> but most of the time you do you do the right thing you know that is interesting because when i think of your taking the this voyage to you know all the various um, countries and rivers and oceans and everything else in in my mind's eye i think about how much freedom there is to visit all these places and what you're telling me is there's a very bureaucratic side to doing something as dreamy as going on a five-year voyage. And, and that is all the paperwork, all the countries. You know, I'm here, now I'm leaving, and everything you have to do with all these bureaucracies. And that wouldn't even occur to me, Stephen. Mm -hmm that you had to deal with, with so much of that type of thing. And, and I can understand wanting to um, comply as best you can, because you don't want to end up in a jail in a foreign country. Yeah. The, That'd be pretty cruddy. Yeah. Uh, some, some of the, some of what happens is downright bribery and corruption mm -hmm. and you resist that, but sometimes there's simply no way to go forward except for paying a bribe. That's only happened to me maybe four times. But other times it's just irritation. And sometimes it's almost more in the humor category. It's, it's, it, it annoys you to no end, but sometimes they're just being paternalistic. Like down in Argentina, they have this government agency called the Prefectura Naval, which is kind of like a, a waterborne police or kind of like a Coast Guard. And they want to know everything you're doing every step of the way every hour of the day and every, a new papers every time every half hour you know you can't even take them seriously if you took them seriously you just just forget the whole voyage and spend the whole time in their offices with their lawyers making more papers and uh it's just some absurdity you know it's like it's like out of a <laughs> kafka novel or something and uh, and they're so annoying because they they think that it's so dangerous what you're doing. They can't possibly let you go ahead and do what you want to do, you know? And, um, but it's just sort of funny too, because it, it turns out that in reality, you can ignore them and they, it's all, it's all bluff, you know, and there's, they, there really isn't much of a, of a, 
uh, fallout on, on doing so, but you don't know that at first. But, you know, there's countries that, that don't get along with each other, and you get in the middle between them. I've had that happen uh, in, a, in a traveling that I did when I was 18. I, I was traveling in Europe and Asia. I, I was there on the border between Pakistan and India when the when the war broke out between those two countries. I was right in the middle of a war. Down in, down in Venezuela and Colombia, I was following, or we, Jenny and I, the, the borders between these countries tend to be on rivers. They've yes. chosen rivers to be their right. international boundaries. So yeah. when you're river traveling like we were, we had one country on one side and one country on the other. And when they don't get along, you notice because if you're on one side, they are kind of worried that you might be the gorillas from the other side, you know, like right. Uh, right. Venezuela and Colombia, you, you stop on the Venezuelan side and you hear, you hear all how much they aren't getting along with people in the other side. You know, the, the soldiers on one side are bad mouth and bad mouth and the soldiers on the other side. Um, anyway, that's just part of what goes on out there in the world. It's not, it's not the biggest thing. Well, here we have the Rio Grande. So I can understand the rivers being the dividing line between the countries because the Rio Grande, you know, in part divides us from uh, Mexico. The voyage had to be quite a bit different when you did it with Ginny and you actually stayed a lot longer too, five years compared to three years. Couldn't have been the same boat though, Stephen. Here you go. Yeah. The five-year voyage for that, we couldn't use uh, the the 12 foot boat we actually went on a little trial cruise in the 12 foot boat to make sure that see i figured that if if i can travel with Ginny in the 12 foot boat for a week which we did then that's she passes the test this is going to be possible in a somewhat larger boat so we bought a boat that's somewhat larger 21 feet instead of 12 feet but here again sort of unusually light and shallow draft given the length of the boat so it's fairly narrow and draws only six inches of water. You can go in very shallow water. You can pull up onto a beach. Now, this boat, we modified it somewhat. It was an open boat, we, but we built a small cabin. We built some storage for food and water. We built a rowing station. Both these boats are sailboats and rowboats. And in the second boat book, second boat, it, the rowing is with a sliding seat, which makes a difference because you got the leg, strength of your legs as well as the strength of the of your arms to give you propulsion. And <clears throat> both worked well for the purpose. The they were about the same size in terms of how much accommodation each person gets. The second boat was a little bigger, but it had two people instead of one, so both were pretty crowded. Go ahead, Gareth. <laughs> well, you know, we mentioned Mexico a moment ago. I just got a story that I would like to tell that was told to Suzanne and myself when we first moved in. Now, we still broadcast from Seattle, and we don't get back there often enough. There was a little pandemic problem that interfered with our travel plans. But Suzanne and I actually live in Sarasota, Florida. We make use of Zoom to do these shows that we enjoy so much. And in getting settled into our villa that we bought here in Sarasota, we had a gentleman come in because we needed some woodworking done. And I got talking to him about his life experiences because that's just my natural bent to start asking questions about, so how's your life been? And he told a very interesting story, Stephen. He said that he went down traveling with his wife in Mexico. And naturally, you have people that get very excited about going to Mexico, and there are others who will 
tell you about how the State Department does caution people because, you know, they do business their way and we do business our way. They are not identical, to say the least. And this woodworking gentleman told us that he went down there and parked his RV on a beach. And he was sleeping there with his wife. They were in for the night on this lovely beach listening to the waves. Knock, knock, knock. Well, it's one of the federales. And the federale told him that he is suspected of having sex on the beach. <laughs> it's more than just a cocktail. <laughs> he, having sex on the beach, that is illegal. He can be fine. He can go to jail for that. And so the federale wanted to know what was going on with this couple. And the gentleman, thinking quickly, said to him, sir, I am a minister of the gospel. I don't know whether he is or not, but that's what he said to the guy. I am a minister of the gospel. It is my duty, according to the Bible, to cleave unto my wife and for me to meet her needs as she meets mine in our marriage under God, sanctified by God. He got right in the federale's face. And the authority looked at him and said, I am so sorry, senor, you are a padre. <laughs> he said, I'll tell you what, there, you are fine. You know, sorry, we do not mean to interrupt. We will have officers around on this beach to safeguard your privacy in the camper on the beach. And he didn't wind up having to go to jail. And he didn't wind up having to bribe anybody. And he just went about getting a night's sleep with his wife in his camper on the beach to know where you are and what's going on at the time, who are the people whose palms need to be greased, if you are so inclined or not, and how you deal with authority in a foreign country. I think anymore, certainly during the last few decades of my life, that has gotten to be rather a crucial question. And you have some experience in the line, Stephen. <laughs> if, if that was a request for a bribe, that was one that I have not yet encountered. <laughs> But, you know, ingenuity has no limits. Right. That's right. And necessity is the mother of invention after all. <clears throat> so this is, um, this is what it is to be in the world and to travel. It's, it's fascinating, the stories that you include in your books. Let me ask you, Stephen, are you talking in terms of there's book one and there's book two. We've been discussing principally the five-year voyage, exploring Latin America's coasts and rivers. Is there an intended series there? Are you mapping out what you're going to write as much as where you're going to be voyaging? Well, there's a certain amount of pre-planning that occurred in the first book. That is, I, I envisioned a voyage ahead of time that did more or less come about. I always intended to write about it, of course. Same thing with the second book in the sense that I intended to write about it. But in terms of where we went, it was not as clear cut because that boat that we ended up making well we we took an existing shell of a boat and made something rather special out of it after we had been running around in that thing in the western caribbean mainly we realized what its potential was we got ourselves into the rivers of south america and we realized that we had hit the jackpot that boat in those rivers was a like a time machine it was like a flying carpet we could go anywhere and very comfortably and safely it was just the perfect boat for that because it was big enough for the amount of accommodation 
Um, it was small enough, on the other hand, to make the portages, because in South America, there are all those big rivers. There's the Orinoco, Amazon, so on, but they're separated in most cases somewhat. Well, they have enough of a road network down there that in most that you, you can find places to go from one, you go up a river until it's too shallow to go any further. You can get a ride on, on, a, on a road network to another river at the top of it and then go down the other side. And we did that multiple times. And you just have to find somebody with a pickup truck big enough or with a boat trailer or a flatbed or something like that, pay them a few hundred bucks. And we did a total of 13 of those, of those transports mm. free or for pay. And that really opened things up. We had a lot of, a lot of fun in South America and it was sort of safe and sane in a different way that you don't have the storms and the big waves and stuff. And, um, the, um, in fact, we decided at that point to have a baby because it was so accommodating and, um, we ended up having our son there in Brazil and continued the voyage for another year after that, before we ended up having to split apart for the last five months of the voyage. That is completely fascinating that you could navigate the rivers in South America to such extent it was like being on the interstate highways of the United States that you could go from place to place in that way. Yeah. It, I, I think that rivers are really interesting and the, so, but down in South America, it is just like the, the river, the river capital of the world. If you want, they have lots of really big rivers that are laid out in a very accessible it's a good way. Like in North America, you have the Missouri and the Mississippi. That's a good river network. You can get around in there a lot. Um, other parts of the world, unfortunately, like in Russia, the rivers all flow to the Arctic. That doesn't work out so well. Um, down in South America, you have the Orinoco. And we went up it. We found the mysterious interconnection between the Orinoco and the Rio Negro. The Rio Negro is a Amazonian tributary. It leads into the Amazon. Well, how can you have a connector between two major river basins? If you, have a, if you have a connector between two river basins, that means that whole part of the continent is actually an island, which it is. Um, a large portion of South America is actually an island separated from the rest, but nobody thinks of it that way. Uh, but it's because there is a river, the Orinoco, that way up towards its headwaters, part of it split off. It's the only place in the world where you can navigate up one river and then take a distributary. Remember, a distributary is where water splits apart as opposed to a tributary, which is where they come together. You turn right on a distributary, you end up in the, uh, in the Amazon. Anyway, so we found that. We went into the Amazon, kind of, kind of a back door. And then we went continuing south, but now we're going upstream on one of the tributaries of the Amazon that's coming in from the south. We sailed into Bolivia, a landlocked country, mostly high in the Andes, not thought of as a cruising destination. We sailed into it um, with Bolivia on our right, Brazil on our left, until that river, which at its beginning, and I'm talking about the Madeira, which is a tributary of the Amazon, at beginning, it had sea horizons. Sea horizon is when you can't see land on the other side. All these rivers have sea horizons in their wider areas. And then until we got to where it was so shallow, we couldn't go any further, you know, getting down to like nine inches. And um, 
So you experience all the moods of the river where when it's really big, it's like, like a freshwater ocean or, you know, the Great Lakes or something, maybe. And then when it's really small, it's like that brook stream in your backyard, you know, it's the, the smaller streams are often prettiest, I gotta admit. I have to ask you, did you feel safe doing all this? Did Ginny feel safe doing all this traveling for five years around there? Well, she is admitting a bit lately that she has no big urge to go and do a lot more ocean sailing. She probably got enough of that. She likes the, every, all the other aspects of it. She likes the adventure. She will, she will get out there. But the, um, there is a certain level of insecurity on a small boat out at sea. And so she's not anxious to repeat that. And then, and you're talking about the ocean at that point, right? The ocean now, part. Yeah. The, the rivers part can be very beautiful. She would but, do that again, but just not the ocean. Yeah. Okay. I think of that song. And of course I'm romanticizing at this point, Orinoco flow, the Enya song there. When you were there in that part of the territory, does that song speak to you when you hear it? I'm curious about these personal details. You listen to something like that. Did it remind you of your voyage in any particular way? Mm. I'm not sure I've heard that song. Do you care how many few bars for me? Uh, I wouldn't do that to our listeners. <laughs> there, but well, the idea is that, you know, there are these points where you want us you want to embrace life by going on a great adventure and when you're you're sailing along the Orinoco flow you're going to be transported to a different space mentally and emotionally it could change your philosophy of life some people say well I when I think of the Orinoco I have to think of what it's like to be there it's it flows through the the Llanos which is almost like almost a desert not quite a desert it's generally flat the river is big but very wide and you're flowing through hot hot it's it's like it's like sailing through a desert with with hot winds that desiccate you but you're always there mm. with with coolish fresh water you can dump the water over your head anyway that's that's the nature of being there it's hot and windy but there's always fresh water not so bad you're you're in you come to shore and it's all like desert sands you feel like you're in arabia or something until you get way up high in that river, then it slowly changes to the Amazon through subtle degrees. You're in the Amazonian jungle where it's, where it's, where it's a high rainfall again. And speaking of the jungle, did you run into a lot of crocodiles or large snakes? Lots of crocodiles, alligators, the, what are really common are the alligators, not, not the man eaters, the, the smaller ones, the crocodiles, of a large size are, are present, but not in such great numbers anymore. Snakes, we saw uh, a, a fair number. Yes. And none of that concerned you that it, it was not. Uh... I, I, I take I, I take snakes as one of the over feared categories there. There's not enough of them and they're not poisonous to to warrant the amount of fears. They're generally not anything that not they're not the things I worry about. The things you need to worry about down there are the the microbes there is a very serious um, a certainty of getting lots of bad diseases if you allow yourself to be uh, bitten by the mosquitoes or if you drink the water uh when you shouldn't so Steven, that's the real world 
Thank you for celebrating Earth Day with us. It was great to hear this. I'd like to talk to you again on air sometime about the stories and the plans you make, because I regard a guy like you as a world citizen, and that is a compliment to you. Thank you for sharing who you are and what you've experienced along with Ginny and with all those people that helped make One Earth. Thank you, Stephen Ladd. Thank you, Gary and Suzanne. You're welcome. The book again, The Five-Year Voyage, Exploring Latin American Coasts and Rivers. And we be out of here, Suzanne. Stay tuned for American Road Trip Talk at 1 o'clock with host Gary Mann. Also celebrating Earth Day. Have a great Earth Day and a great Earth Weekend, everyone.